To get started this morning, I kind of wanted to ask a leading question, and this kind of goes into what we're going to be talking about. And uh, have you ever had moments in your life when your mind is racing like 100 miles an hour, and you're processing information like crazy? And particularly, your mind is racing so fast that you're assessing everything that's happened in the past, you're assessing what's happening in the present in front of you, and then you're thinking of every situation to what it can be like in the future. Right, am, I like, am I the only one? That kind of like, I'm an anxious person, so if my fellow anxious people in this room, sometimes like you can figure out every scenario, every possibility and moment. So I'm like, is that true of us? And so this happened kind of recently, um, uh, a couple weeks ago, when I was picking up my son Boston from childcare. And I go to childcare here, and I was picking him up over at Crown Point. And the lady who I'm getting from his classes is, hey, just to let you know, Boston, he bit someone today. <laughs> and I was like, my child? I mean, you laugh now, but my kid's back there with some of your kids. <laughs> you laugh. But I, I'm getting my son, and I'm just like, obviously my first thought went to, he's like, how has my wife raised him to bite people? <laughs> no, but I, I'm thinking of just like, what have I done to raise a biter? And then I'm, I, I, I've been talking to this lady. I was just like, well, I'm like, oh, like, who did he bite? Like, I want to make sure, like, I'm talking to the parents. Like, well, he bit me. <laughs> and so now I'm confronted with the person who my child bit. So now it's like, how am I going to respond in this moment? And then I go home, and I'm like, okay, how do I deter my son from ever biting in the future? How do I try to combat this? I can go back to my childhood to when my mom would fill my mouth with soap growing up, and ugh, it's the worst. But I was just, I'm all of a sudden thinking in this moment as I'm getting my biter, I'm like, he's a pastor's kid. He's supposed to be extra spiritual, right? No, he's a biter. And so... I'm now assessing in this moment, I'm like, okay, what have I done in the past to have a biter? How am I responding in this moment? And then how can I fix this in the future? So past, present, and future. That happens to us so many times when we're processing that whole circle of information. In a much realer sense, this happens when we're encountering hard times. Recently, like my wife and I, about two and a half, three weeks ago, we find out that she's pregnant with our third child, but at the same time, we found out she's pregnant with twins, but one didn't make it. And when I'm, we're in this room and we're processing, when we see one life that is alive and one we see this a lifeless body, we're processing information of like, what have we done in the past that may have caused this? How am I processing this truth that I'm being hit in the face with a baseball bat? And what things in the future can I do to, to uh, fix that this won't happen? How can I know that this baby will be safe? Past, present, and future, all colliding in one moment. In a sense, this is what the Passover does. Israel is experiencing this, this one night of when they're confronted with the past, when they have to respond in the moment that's in front of them, and they have to look to the future and how things will be. So my outline this morning 
is just as there's so much in the Passover, so like I, I can't cover everything in detail. We'll be here for hours. I much how much I know how much everyone wants to stay here for hours. But the things that we're going to be focusing on is three things the Passover helps us do. Looking at the meal, the Passover helps you look at the past rightly. The Passover helps you respond to the present correctly. And then lastly, the Passover helps you hope for the future eagerly. The Passover does those three things. Look at the past rightly, respond to the present correctly, and hope for the future eagerly. So before we dive into that, I mean, you know, we did this a little bit last week when we um, had uh, that two messages, but I want to have some review because this, this, uh, this tenth plague that we're going to be looking at is different from all the others in really significant ways. And having some review when we get to this point, it will be helpful for us. If you weren't here last week or just for our sake of time this morning, we have to look at this. And so we know when we look at Genesis 15, Abraham was promised that his, gener- his, uh, his, uh, his descendants would be in slavery in Egypt. When God is promising on his life to when he enters a covenant with Abraham, he says, I'm going to make sure this covenant happens that I'm making with you, but I'm going to tell you how things will be. And so he tells him here in Genesis 13, or chapter 15, 13 through 14, the Lord says this to Abram. The Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that, I'm, that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So we know the story of like, this isn't new to God. God planned this. God knew this would happen. And in his covenant that he gave with Abraham, this was how things would be. And then we see this very thing fulfilled when we get to Exodus 11, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. And afterward, he will let you go from there. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask, every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor, for silver and gold, great possessions. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, in the sight of all the people. So we see that fulfilled. But we're not going to get into it this morning, but one of the things that's just ironic and a full circle how people are, how you and I are, is when we read our Bibles more, Israel leaves with all these great possessions that were promised to them, But then we have to figure out, what did they end up doing with these great possessions? They make them into a golden calf. And this tells us, as the story of redemption shows us, is you can take the people out of Egypt, but you can't take the Egypt out of the people. And that's to where all this is leading up to Jesus Christ. This is where it's showing you that as we're looking at these 10 plagues, or in the book of Exodus specifically, God takes people out of Egypt relatively quickly. Like the the first 10 verses are just like, all right, you're under physical discomfort. I'm going to deal with that. But in the rest of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and the rest of the Bible up until Jesus' arrival, it shows us a reality that there's the greater Exodus that needs to happen. It's not from physical location, but from spiritual enslavement. 
And that's where the Passover is the, one of those pinnacle things that point us forward to help us look at Jesus. So, nine plagues have happened up to this point, And relatively, there is distinction made. So, like, some of the plagues would just happen to the Egyptians while Israel was up in Goshen. So, darkness would come, and it would only affect the Egyptians, but not the Israelites. And there was distinction that was happening amongst these plagues. Israel was sometimes annoyed by some of the outcomes, but they were reserved, they were protected from, from a majority of these first nine plagues. But one thing that's significant about this tenth plague One thing that's astounding about the Passover itself is that in order for you to be withheld from this plague, participation is required. Israel was not in themselves distinct from the Egyptians and the effects of this plague. They would experience the full wrath, the full weight of this plague if they didn't do the steps outlined for them. Unlike any of the previous ones, you needed to respond to this one. This one demanded participation. Let's start our text this morning. Exodus chapter 12, one through seven. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, and this month shall be for you the month beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation Israel, in the tenth day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb according to their household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. And when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, and then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost of the lintel of the household which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, get this, roasted on a fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. Father, we pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would protect us from distraction, that we would see you for who you are and we would be changed. We love you. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So there's a lot here, like I said, and going over line by line, detail by detail, is a task. But like I said, we're going to be looking at three ways the Passover can help us this morning. And uh, going through this text, we're going to start at number one. The Passover helps you look at the past rightly. To examine this, we're going to be looking at the ingredients of the Passover. One that's significant is the bitter herbs. Or if if you watch a lot of Food Network like me with Gordon Ramsay, it's herbs. And so, like, I, that's another thing. I just, Food Network, you can't go wrong. It's amazing. But anyways, bitter herbs. 
Up until this point, bitterness has only been used one other time in the book of Exodus. So one thing that's important for us is we let our Bibles interpret the Bible for us. We read our Bibles through the lens to which the Bible's given us. And so when we look here, why are bitter herbs included in the meal? And then how should we potentially know what it means? And so here, the first time it shows up in the book of Exodus, and the one other time it shows up is in Exodus chapter 1, verse 14. This says, And they, the Egyptians, made their lives bitter with hard service, and mortar and brick, and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they they ruthlessly made their work as slaves. And then before that, the only other time we see this word ma'or in Hebrew, bitter, show up is in Genesis 49, 13, or 23 rather. And when it says this, the archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him severely. This is when Jacob is prophesying over Joseph's life and the archers there are are Joseph's brothers and shooting bitter arrows at him. That shows us that it's not a response, but rather they made his life hard. And one thing that's significant for us this morning in our study of bitterness is that bitterness is not just a response, but bitterness is a reality you and I can live in. Bitterness isn't just a first and foremost a response, but bitterness is something you can live in. Bitterness is something we experience. Bitterness is a good to mention in terms of remembering the past rightly because from the hard past, a lot of us struggle to respond to our present circumstances correctly or have any hope for any future positive outcome. And yet, our Savior, God with the Israelites, wants them to partake and have bitter herbs to remember to remember. This is good because some of us today have been indoctrinated to believe in a watered-down potential of Christianity, where it's just, be joyful all the time. I mean, I'm going to take James 1 and put it out of context for you. Count it all joy when you acquire trials of various kinds. And just, hey, your life's hard right now, but come on. You live in America. And often it's like, yeah, we need to count blessings, but not at the expense of acknowledging that life is hard. And some of us in this room are suffering today. And if we don't put a category, if God doesn't give us a category of being able to look at things rightly, processing information in its place, we end up having bitter responses towards things. We end up always responding in bitterness towards outcomes. But God gives us a framework to look at the past rightly, to be able to know that bitterness is something you experience and you can constantly know what it was, but not be affected by it. Not have it produce in you a response to which you are always mean towards people, pessimistic about everything, because that's not what this category of bitterness shows us. Looking at Israel in some of our lives, bitterness is something we first responded with, but something we first experienced. 
when we ignore past bitterness, we aren't numbing or providing an antidote to your problem. We're trying to forget the past. You are actually accelerating bitter responses in your life, enslaving yourself to a view of the past that is dark, that is cold, and that is absolutely full of voidness. If you're trying here just to be a man and numb things that have happened, you're, you're depriving your family of you being able to actually care for them. If you're a wife and you're trying to ignore the hurts that have happened to you, you're depriving yourself of the joy of the relationships that can be in front of you. In this right here where God says, in the Passover meal itself, I want you to constantly remember this moment of this hard season you are in. Bitter herbs. God never wanted Israel to forget their experience in Egypt. Because one thing is we're unpacking this text with these bitter herbs that Israel is indulging in. We have two things that we can see in this text about the bitter bitter herbs. First, the bitter herbs were indigenous to Egypt. Wherever they go, they're taking a little Egypt with them. I mean, that's with you today probably. It's with me you bring a little, if you like it or not, you bring a little baggage with you, a little everywhere of your past. But is it the thing, if you're going to look at it rightly, or are you going to actually be a thing that weighs you down and make it a crippling reality, do you not be able to function with people? Second, bitterness, bitterness here, the bitter herbs, aren't just a garnish on the side. They're not just like oregano you want to add to your burrito later. It, they're actually a staple ingredient part of the meal itself. Three things, bitter herbs, unleavened bread, and the lamb. Eat them. Those three things. It's not a side dish. It's a portion of the meal. And God wanted the bitterness to be seen in its place. Because that's the thing. The Passover has three things. And for you to look at the past rightly, you put your past in its place. And you see it through the lens of the whole meal. God's grace allows you to view the past and lie the whole meal because you taste what life is like in prior circumstances, but you're given reminders of how good God's been in the present. But today we have to acknowledge that some of us, life's just hard today. Life's hard today. I think if you can honestly say that, saying you walked in this morning and life is hard today. You walked in this morning with uh, coffee and bitter herbs. It's been hard, but bitterness has been reality for some. I want to encourage you to indulge in bitter tastes of hardships, but see it how it compels you to lead, serve, and love others within this local church because bitterness as reality does not lead to self-pity when it's eaten with the whole meal. It leads to self-denial. It leads you to showing children how life is hard, but God is faithful. The Passover instructs us to look at the past rightly because bitter herbs paired with the lamb allow you not to live in the past but reflect on it and able to say despite everything, Jesus is still better today. He's still better today. But even but we have to look at what bitter herbs do entirely. Sometimes the bitter herbs in your life 
is not just an experience you have, but it's actually sin in our lives. And one thing where bitter herbs are helpful is for you to get a taste reminders in your life of prior sins that you do not want to go back to because you see what it was like. I mean, in this room, what would it look like if husbands, if they have somewhere in their house the written note of them telling their spouse that they indulge in sex morality, they see that note of what it was like telling their spouse of the time that they indulged in that. And when they see it, they're reminded of how horrible that day was. They never want to experience that day again. Or when wives who do the very same thing to when they portray the husband's trust and they hurt and they have reminders in their home of that was a bad day. I never want to relive that day again. And they see it and it's a bitter herb in their home. Because that's the gift of bitter herbs. They, one, remind you of the past hard times and let you appreciate Christ today, but also allows you to see past sins and says, I never want to go back there. I don't, because I taste it with the lamb. Even though I don't understand what's happening in this moment, which we're going to get to the rest of the ingredients, even though I have, I'm living in a lot of uncertainty, even though I'm living in such, such situations that are uncomfortable, even when this one option looks really nice, I don't want to because I know what this day was like. The bitter herbs help you look at every past encounter rightly. And it deters you from indulging in sin and it reminds you of how God is faithful today. Don't forget the past. We see it in light of the whole. The next thing the Passover helps us do is look at your present circumstances correctly, the unleavened bread. Now, I'm not much of a baker, but I, I was talking to my wife and leading up to this, I realized that the difference between leavened bread and unleavened bread is the, not, the time it takes to make it. So if you leaven bread, it takes longer to make it. Unleavened bread is quick, right? I think I got that. I feel like I'm on like, you guys watch the great British baking show on like Netflix? It's like, Every time I feel like it's a Paul Hollywood, it's like he turns over bread and he's like, mm, soggy bottom. And it's just like, if you guys don't watch Unleavened, that is a horrible joke for those who do not watch Great British Baking Show. That's whenever I think of bread. But back to our text, the unleavened bread is quickly made because it mirrors quick response. A quick response to what is true. The unleavened bread helps us respond to the present correctly because it focuses on immediate acts of obedience and the deliverance of God. Israel is commanded to act quickly because God is moving. Israel's obedience in their preparation here functions as a parallel to God's plan of redemption. Look here with me at Exodus 12, 8 through 12. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on fire, with, unleavened, with the unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not let any of its raw, to talk about the lamb here, uh, be boiled in water, but roasted with its head, with its legs, and its inner parts. You shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains shall be in the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat, get this, with your belts fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. 
For I'll pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I'll strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all, all gods of Egypt, I'll execute judgment. I am the Lord. Israel made the unleavened bread in haste because it mirrors God acting in haste. Making the bread in this way, they did not directly reveal that they directly reveal that they believe God's timing in all things and the outcome of that timing. Looking at the first point in light of this one, one would say that the unleavened bread functions as a door between you looking at your past rightly and having any hope for the future. That's what the unleavened bread. It's quick responses, what you know is true today. I mean, just an example, it's just where I've been blown away by the faithfulness of my wife. I've been married five years now, but in this five years of marriage, I remember the first time we were pregnant when this, this, this pregnancy ended in a miscarriage, our first one, and it was a mis-miscarriage, which means that where my wife's, her body thought that she was still pregnant, but she wasn't, and so she had a, in this, in this room, they're telling us that we lost a baby, and she had to prep for surgery, and she's given all these options, and we're here, and just eating, eating, eating bitter herbs, and in this moment, I'm just looking at my wife, and Emily, when she's looking at her faithless husband, she can look at me, and despite all the bitter herbs, her unleavened bread is, God's still good today, right? When she was going through it, she can look at me, and her unleavened bread was what she knew was true in that moment, what God revealed about himself in that moment. Despite all the bitter herbs you may eat, the unleavened bread is, what do I know about God today that helps me respond obediently today? Because some of us this morning, again, as we're in this process of going through this Passover, you can't just eat bitter herbs alone. You have to know what is true. And the unleavened bread is act obedient today to what do we know. The pain doesn't go away, but it's met with gentle reminders that God cares because the unleavened bread is a reminder that God is doing something today. And I believe it. And I'm going to act and live my life because I believe it. Maybe some people here today need to align your obedience with God's promises. You need to act today and not leaven your bread. You need to say what is true, not what circumstances present to be true. God's word says what is true. The Passover helps you respond today to your past rightly because you know it's true. But the third thing which arguably the most important thing is the Passover helps you hope for the future eagerly. It is the blood of the lamb. Now this verse, when I was just reading it, I just want to read it. It's going to sit here for a second. But it's oh so sweet. Exodus twelve thirteen. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall to you to destroy you. And I will strike the land of Egypt. I want you to get key words in there. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. When I see the blood, 
I will pass over you. One of the greatest pictures here in the Passover lamb and what it does for the nation of Israel is this. This plague needed participation from Israel. Again, he says, you need to make this feast this way. You need to have bitter herbs. You need to have unleavened bread. But most importantly, this is how you cook the spotless lamb. This is how you prepare it. And this is what you do with its blood once it's prepared. Israel is only spared from the destroyer when they cover their doorposts with the blood. Look at Moses' response here as he gives the instructions about this, starting in verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go, select for yourselves lambs according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hypsis and dip its blood in the basin and touch the lintel of your doorpost with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not destroy the destroyer, will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statue for you and your sons forever. We're going to get to that point of forever here in a moment, but one thing that uh, I love, I think D.A. Carson makes, like, presents this as a drama that's really helpful for us. But imagine with me, it's Passover night. We have two Jewish men talking. We're going to call them Bill and Jared. Bill and Jared, super Jewish names, I get it. Bill and Jared are talking to each other. Jared looks at Bill and says, Bill, it's kind of scary stuff going on tonight. Like, do you get what Moses just said? The angel of death is going to come through here. Every firstborn all the way up from Pharaoh to his pet dog is going to have the firstborn killed tonight. Everything in this land is going to experience death. This is horrifying. Like, we've never seen anything like this in the history of I don't know when. And he's saying, like, this is scary stuff. Bill's just like, what are you talking about? What are you scared for? He says, I wish I could do Passover every night. Let's have this, let's have this, do this every night. He's like, he, Bill looks at Jared and says, wait, did you, did you not eat the bitter herbs? Did you not cook the unleavened bread? Did you not do the meal as the Lord instructed? You did all that, right? And Jared looks at Bill and says, of course I did. Of course I did that stuff, but this is scary. And Bill's just like, bring it on. That morning... Which family lost the firstborn? It's an important question. Which family lost their firstborn that night? The answer is neither. Neither, because it's not on the mount of their faith, but the object of their faith. It is the blood of the lamb that covers them, not the amount of their actions, not how they did the brushstrokes, not how they prepared it in the way that they, like, they did it right. It's not within their actions. 
actions that saved them. It is the, uh, the mere blood itself that deterred the wrath of God from falling on those within the house. And so for you today, it's not comparing when you're scared to the person sitting next to you of how circumstances are happening in your life to how one person looks like super Christian in your life. The day before when you see Jesus face to face, he'll say, I love you. And it's not based off of the amount of your faith, but it's because I see Jesus when I see you. That is the basis of your faith. That is the basis of your acceptance before God. And that is the hope you and I have this morning. Not the amount, but the object. It is the blood that covers the doorpost. Because Jesus is the spotless lamb without blemish that covers us from the wrath of God. Today, eat bitter herbs, eat unleavened bread, savor the lamb, because through that whole process, the gospel is experienced and appreciated. This morning with your story, you came here with probably who knows what, and who knows what are the things that you're still hiding in your life. But you can know as you eat bitter herbs, when you know what is true today, what God's revealed to you, and you eat that, on, when that spotless lamb is made known to you, when you realize it, what it is, you are free and you are loved. This is where the New Testament gives us a greater reality. When we get to Jesus, when we see here, we don't see the reality of people coming out of their homes in the morning when the Passover is done. The New Testament shows us people don't come out of their homes, but one day you will come out of a tomb. One day the resurrection will happen and you will be able to walk out from the dead and see Jesus face to face. This is what leads Paul to write in Philippians 3.10 when he says, and that I may know him, talking about Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings because like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul's looking at his life, the past, present, and future, and he can say there's no problem in my life that the resurrection can't fix. You this morning can know there's no problem in your life that the resurrection can't fix. Spouses whose husbands or wife are unfaithful, you can look to Jesus who is the faithful spouse. When parent of the wayward child this morning, you can know that God is the father who loves your children more than you ever could love your children. All bitter herbs and suffering, unleavened bread, you can rest in this, is that Jesus has overcome it and he cares for you more than you can ever imagine. But it is need to say, the distinction between Israel and Egypt was drawn in blood. This morning, if you have not submitted to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you have not asked for forgiveness of your sins and turned to Jesus, the destroyer is coming. The wrath is on you. You are not protected. That is one thing. So when you choose not to submit to King Jesus, you choose to take the wrath of God on yourself and pay it forever in hell. That is the reality we live in. That is Jesus' own words. 
when he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. I want to invite you to repent of your sins this morning and turn to Jesus. Turn to him. There's one text here as we're finishing off Moses' words when he's instructed about the Passover. He finishes it with a fascinating conclusion. This is a very family-oriented memorial if you're looking at it. He says here in verses 25 through 27, and when you come into the land the Lord will give you as he promised, you shall keep this service, the Passover, And when your children say, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt. When he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. We live in the greater reality. The Passover we get to indulge in is the communion we take of when we drink of the cup and eat of the bread, of when Jesus himself identifies with those elements. But one thing I want you to get from those verses is to when, when the children look and see what you're doing, it says, when this is, what does this mean? A few application points from there is when your children see you participate in communion. Are they reminded of the promises of God or do they see Egypt? When we worship together and they look and say, God, Dad, Mom, why are we singing these songs this morning? Why do do we go to church? Is when we can look and say, because I am a sinner, because I repented of my sins, the Lord passed over me, and I will fail you constantly. I will not measure up to the dad, to the mom, to the neighbor I'm supposed to be. I will fail you constantly, but Jesus is faithful, and because of that we come and we worship the king, and because we worship him, you can be passed over one day. If you repent of your sins, you can have security. You can know that you know that you know that you know that you know that when you die, you will see Jesus face to face and have absolute confidence in that. Despite what happens, despite the bitter herbs, despite the uncertainties, when people come together, when Bethel Cedar Lake is absolutely healthy, is when people see worshipers together and they know God passed over me for a reason. And it's because of the blood of the Lamb. And that blood is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And the Passover helps us look at our past rightly. It helps us respond to the present correctly. It helps us look to the future eagerly of when one day you won't have to eat bitter herbs anymore. Because everything will be made right.